Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. Doug Maurice, your host. Two great guests this week. We're going to get right to them. I kind of like doing kind of like the rant at the start, but the interviews are too long this week. We'll save my rant. This is like my season preview for the Browns, okay? And last year we did more of a season-y preview because I feel like there was more to preview. I feel like there isn't that much to preview because we just want to see it. Because here's what we all agree on. They're going to be good. How good? How good? We were sitting in the media room at the Browns on Monday, and people were throwing out some record predictions, a bunch of 10 and 6s. Again, here's my preview. 12 and 4. 12 and 4 since December. Um, 12 and 4. So that's where I am. We want to get to it and see it. We want to see how this all works together. We want to see how it works under Freddie Kitchens. We want to see what it looks like with Odell Beckham, with the two additions on the defensive line. It's time to see it. So there's some really good conversation here. It's John Costco of PFF is going to kick it off. He's been on this podcast before. He's really good. And then Daryl Ryder from 92.3 The Fan. You guys know him very well, the way he's covered the Browns for a decade. Um, very prominent member of the Browns media and he and I like disagree on some stuff and that's why I wanted to have him on because sometimes he tweets things about Sashi Brown that makes me want to tear my hair out and when you have that kind of feeling you should have that person on a podcast and have a discussion so we do see the Browns in different ways but I think we had a pretty interesting nuanced discussion here's the warning on this there is Sashi Brown content in here and hopefully it's within the context of things that matter to the Browns um, but it's sort of at the end of the John Costco interview and then towards the end of the Daryl Ryder interview. So if you don't want to hear any of that, listen to the part before that with both John and Daryl that applies specifically to this team right here. And then you can fast forward through the saucy parts. If you want to get into a little bit of like, again, sort of how we got here, um, which I think is interesting, then you can stick around for that. It's kind of long. It's the Browns. They deserve it. John Costco, Daryl Ryder, we're going to run them back-to-back. We're going to go right from John, right into Daryl. We appreciate you listening to Takes by the Lake every Tuesday. We need more subscribers. Tell your friends. We used to have a lot more listeners in uh, last fall and in January and February before than we do right now. We're down listeners, um, and I hope it's because we haven't gotten geared back up yet. But I want to keep doing it every week, and we need more listeners to make it worthwhile for me to keep doing it every week and I, I really want to do that and I think we'll get back to that but I've already got good guests lined up for next week I have like a really good guest that's going to be really fun uh lined up that we're going to get going to hit at some point in the next couple of weeks so we need you tell your friends to give takes by the lake a try again every podcast platform there we are drop an iTunes review read me at cleveland.com Try our Project Tech stuff for the Browns. It's Project Text with Mary Kay Cabot. For me, it's Project Text with Ohio State. That's at projecttext.com slash Buckeye Talk. Listen to my other podcast, the Buckeye Talk podcast, every Wednesday. And after every Ohio State game, that's with Nathan Baird and Stephen Means. And make sure you're catching our Orange and Brown podcast with Mary Kay, Dan, and Scott. Um, so now John Costco and Daryl Ryder getting you ready for this Brown season here on Takes by the Lake. Back with an old friend on Takes by the Lake. He's John Costco from PFF, a senior analyst there. That means he's super smart. John, thanks for your time. <laughs> Always my pleasure, Doug. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, so John, I uh, love following you on Twitter. I like how you look at the game. Um, I'm always looking for context on these Browns, right? Because I've been predicting since December that they're going to go 12-4. and four. Uh, Here's where I'm curious – from your standpoint as we head into this 
like raw talent, when you analyze the numbers and you analyze rosters and you just look at the way the Browns are constructed, how would you describe their talent level within the context of the 32 teams in the NFL? Um, you know, for sure on paper, they have a, a top 10 team and you could argue it as a top five team. Um, you know, you look at, you know, Baker Mayfield, it all starts with the quarterback position in the NFL and you don't have the guy there. You're you're never going to be anything. You could have the the most talented team around him, but if that that guy's not not it, um, really you're not going to get very far. Usually, you know, you might you might strike gold like the Philadelphia Eagles did with their Super Bowl win with Nick Foles at quarterback, and he's clearly not one of the top quarterbacks in the league. But they had obviously the best team that year, and so I think the Browns easily have a top ten team on paper. Baker Mayfield, who you know, in our grades last year was the number eight overall quarterback. We have him about there coming into this year as well. Um, if you, if you, you know, takes that second year leap where a lot of us at PFF expect him to um, because of, you know, what he showed in college. And so, and then also was able to translate that to the NFL. And it was even, you know, had some, you know, obviously rookie mistakes and stuff like that. So, you know, if he gets that next level, you know, that easily takes the team into a top five uh, unit overall. Uh, you know, obviously look at the wide receiver position, but the, you know, arguably the best wide receiver in the NFL and OBJ um, with a lot of good complimentary pieces around that. And Joku's a, a rising tight end. Uh, the offensive line is the one, one spot on that team where you, you have a, a kind of a big question mark because obviously you ship off Zeitler. He's, you know, one of the best, uh, best pass blocking guards in the NFL. Uh, but you still have Batonia and Treader who are, you know, two, really good pieces of an interior uh, offensive line. So then obviously you got the, the question marks on tackle positions and a right guard and Kush is going to step up. Can uh, Robinson play at an average level like he did last year? Hubbard, same thing. Um, running back position, I think is like the tops in, in the NFL when you got Chubb and Hunt, obviously when Hunt comes back after his eight game suspension, but that there is easily the best it position in, in all of football the running backs. Unfortunately for, for Browns fans, it's like the running back position is so devalued that really that that doesn't, you know, elevate the the team on a, on a wins standpoint, but it is nice to have that talent there. And then on the defensive side, defensive line is one of the best in the NFL. Linebackers are really strong because I'd say that Schober is one of the best young linebackers in the NFL. You've got a, you know, Kirksey who's been struggling a bit lately, but uh, in the secondary, Denzel Ward is, is easily one of the, the best corner, cover cornerbacks in the NFL. Uh, you know, as a young guy, he's, I expect another leap from him. He looks a lot bigger, a lot stronger than he did last year. So hopefully the, the injuries and the concussions he had last year will, will iron out there, you know, subside. And then uh, you added Gree Williams, and then they have a, you know, obviously Demarius Randall. So, like, on paper they have that top ten type team, a team that should easily get into the playoffs if everything comes together well. Uh, but, uh, you know, if Baker Mayfield takes that next step, they easily, you, know, you can see him as a top five team on paper easily. I, I, I do appreciate the fact that you got at least like two minutes into that before you brought up the offensive line, because I like the flow. We're talking about Odell. You're talking about all the good Baker stuff, whatever. And then it's like it's like the record is right. Scratching to a screeching halt talking about this offensive line. There's so much good here. There's so much good, and you just detailed it. 
Do you think it's possible that the Browns will begin the season with just four offensive linemen and that they won't even bother putting a starting right guard out there? Or do you think that they, in the, the two guys they've added, or Eric Cush or the ghost of Austin Corbett or, or somebody, who, who would you guess might end up emerging? Uh, Freddie on Monday said that Cush is going to start the opener, but while they look at these other two guys, who do you think is going to wind up being the right guard by week four, let's say? Uh, I think Wyatt Teller is going to be that guy. Once he learns a playbook and, and meshes with that offensive line and, and, you know, figures out what, what it is that, you know, uh, uh, camp and wants James camp and wants to do the offensive line coach. So um, I think he, he's a guy that we really like coming out of college. And I say really like, but he, he was a guy that intrigued us, graded really well in college. Um, I think we saw him as a, you know, late second, early third round pro- uh, prospect drafted in the fifth round so I think they got kind of a really good deal here when trading for him um, and then he started with seven games last year and played really well he's, he's, he's really good as a pass protector struggled as a run blocker but then in this preseason he's really stepped it up in in both areas he hasn't given up a single pressure all preseason long obviously it's just preseason but still like it's encouraging to see not there's not anybody on the offensive line for the Browns this preseason that didn't give up any pressure so um, I think he's the guy that will eventually take that starting position at right guard uh, once he figures out the playbook and I think I think um, that should help obviously stabilize that interior offensive line and um, really uh, then then they have that depth there I think then that yeah. because I think he can be a that guy there you, then you have Cush behind him and then Corbett can fill in, uh, you know, and if needed or whatever. But once you have that depth, now that you've got that guy in there, I think it's a, it stabilizes a lot better. It, would you make a trade like Dorsey did? And we know in the end it kind of got squished into one trade, but basically it was Kevin Zeitler for Olivier Vernon. Based on the the how much you need a good guy at that position – uh, would you trade a right guard for a pass rushing defensive end every time, or, or would, would you have any questions about that decision to swap Zeitler for Vernon, the way it worked out? Uh, I, I, w- I would do it every time, mainly because the the position, you know, the positional value has to come into play there. Zeitler is, is you know, he's a top five guard in the NFL in, in pass protecting, which is the most important aspect of of a guard. But really, you can still scheme around like a bad uh, offensive guard in the NFL. Look at the Kansas City Chiefs last year. They had Kevin Cameron Irving starting at left guard last year, and he was atrocious. But nobody really talks about it because Patrick Mahomes was phenomenal, and it he covered it up, and, and that scheme covered it up. And they were able to, you know, not highlight how bad he was last year. He didn't showcase it like he was in, in Cleveland. Like, he was still as bad as he was, you know, last year as he was in Cleveland all those years. So – you can hide that, but what you, you can't do is, is if, you, if you're going one-on-one, it's you know third down, you got your pin your ears back, you've got to have that guy on the edge be able to defeat the offensive tackle. And that's not that's – not, Browns weren't getting any type of production from that on a consistent basis last year from somebody opposite of Miles Garrett. Now right. they have that. And, I mean, as a guy, like he's – Vernon had that monster year, you know, on his contract year, the second half of the year. And it really kind of didn't live up to his contract. He's still been a very good edge rusher. So they're going to get that player that you you you, double, you can't double team Garrett anymore because they're going to try. But then you're on one one with a guy who's almost as good as Garrett at generating pressure. So I, I would do 
that level of talent, when you, when you make that trade, do it every time. And that makes sense. And again, it's like, here we are. Uh, I, I've at times felt bad about it this preseason because I've hammered sort of the Corbett thing so much because I just think it's so crazy. Like, you can't, I get the idea that here we are. It's like, oh, no, the Browns aren't perfect one through 22 with their starters. Let's have me spend you know, 45 minutes of podcast bemoaning the right guard spot. It's like, well, because their their quarterback is good and their receivers are good and their pass rushers are good and their corners are good, I'm going to spend all this time talking about right guard. But then it also grinds my gears a little bit of like, maybe that's why you shouldn't have picked a guard with the first pick in the second round, because you know what? It kind of doesn't matter if your guard stink. So then maybe let's not use the 33rd pick in the draft on a guard. But anyway, I digress, and I'm not going to spend a whole podcast on it. I said no. I think... Am I right? Is it okay? Like, am I talking about it you're, too much? Or like, where, no, where no. It's. I mean, you're 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 right though. Like, like uh, there's part of this is like, hey, yeah, you shouldn't have spent this this draft capital on it on on a guard that who's not probably not going to start ever for you. Like, you at least what you've seen so far, you, you shouldn't do, have done that. Like, you it makes absolute sense because like, well, as as like a lot of Browns fans do, they they've gone through all this pain for the past twenty five years of not having like a lot of good of good of the roster. So now they have most of the rosters really strong. So you want to, you, you, it's just natural to pick out the bad and go, you know, and nitpick at that and criticize that. So, I, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, everybody does that. It completely get it, you know? So, um, but well, I feel it's better. also Thank the reason you. why you, <laughs> it's why it's also why you, you accumulate picks because no GM, like as good as John Dorsey has drafted for the Browns, the, these, you know, these first two years and we think the, the, the draft this year will, will, you know, pan out for some players. We actually, you know, we don't know at this point, but like, you know, obviously you nailed on Baker, Denzel Ward, Nick Chubb, uh, Jannard Avery, all these players that he, he hit on, but you know, Antonio Cowley, but you know, there's going to be misses. Look at his time in Kansas city. Yeah. He, he was able to hit on Travis Kelsey and Tyree kill, but and Patrick Mahomes, but do you remember any of his other picks? It was Eric Fisher is one of them. He's he's been a pretty below average offensive tackle his whole career, but that's why you accumulate the picks because nobody is nobody hits on those guys at a, at a high rate. You just you know the, the Patriots they they accumulate a ton of picks and they make all these picks and they just shipped off their their guy they drafted in the second round last year already. Right. You know they that's what they do. They take up all those. You know, they spend a lot on the draft capital because that's where you get that value is just accumulating the picks and making picks. And obviously you want to hit on some. You can't just completely whiff on every single one, but nobody does that. So Right. Good points. Um I I have said I think Miles Garrett can be the defensive player of the year. As you analyze a player like that entering his third season with what he's done in his first two seasons, when you add two other very good pass rushers to the defensive line, when you try to figure maybe what kind of season Miles Garrett could have, where are you? Uh, the sky's the limit. I mean, he could, he could, you know, it's the third year. You look at what he was coming into his, his rookie year. He looked like a guy that was still growing into his body as, as hard as that can believe as a guy that looks like that type of specimen. But he was still growing into his body. He still, you know, he looked like he didn't know how to properly use his hands. He could win on pure athleticism, um, but still was learning moves and to what he looks like now. And it's it's kind of phenomenal how a guy that like that can look that much better and i don't know if anybody else 
sees this. I, I mean, I see it. And, and grade-wise, it sh- you know, obviously he took a leap from his rookie year to the second year. I expect a similar leap from, from last year to this year that he – you're absolutely right. Like, he has that potential of being defensive player of the year, 20-plus sacks, and, like, you know, grading off into the one of the, the best defenders in the NFL um, because he is that good, is that talented – uh, has that work ethic to, to, to be able to do all that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I definitely see a, a defensive player of the year type year for Miles Garrett because of, you know, A, he's got the finally got the, the defensive pieces around him that will allow him to, to get more of those sacks. And, yeah, that, that's what he can do is, is beyond words almost. Uh, and I know we've justifiably so a lot of us have spent a lot of time on the offense. And every time we bring up the offense, Freddie Kitchen says, hey, guys aren't talking to, enough about the defense. And he thinks the defensive line is the strength of this team. But when you think about this defense and you think about maybe some of the individual players and you ran through some of them already. But when you think about Denzel Ward and Demarius Randall and Joe Schobert and Olivier Vernon and Sheldon Richardson and Larry Ogunjobi and Miles Garrett, like when we're talking, you said top potentially a top five team on paper if Baker sort of reaches his threshold. Um, how good is that defense when you really start breaking down individual grades and the way you guys look at individual players? Are there a lot of defenses that have, you know, maybe six or seven guys that can that can grade out at a level that maybe the Browns can? Um, look at the best defenses in the NFL, and you're probably looking at the Patriots, the Bears. I mean, you have the Bears, and they they were able to do that last year, um, and a lot of that was in their secondary, and then they they let some of those guys go. Um, so the you know the Bears had that talent for and that thing is it's it's kind of like fleeting. You, you Vikings had that for a year, you know, a couple of years ago when they made it to the NFC Championship game, that but then they kind of they didn't make, they aren't able to maintain that. Bears were able to do that kind of two years in a row. They really kind of took a big leap last year even the Jaguars who had this, this monster defense in, in 2017, when they made it to the AFC championship game, you know, they took a step back and they, but they still have a, you know, a top five defense on the field. So um, yeah, I think those are the, the teams that you kind of look at that. Yeah. Maybe they have those pieces there. Um, you know, obviously with the Jaguars with Jalen Ramsey and then all the defensive linemen they have Yannick and Guaca, um, they just drafted Josh Allen, who we really like coming out of college. So, they have they have that pipe type of potential there, um, and then I think the Patriots they they do what what they do is 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 quite amazing. Obviously, they have theirs is mostly in the secondary with uh, you know Stephon Gilmore and the McCourty brothers. Um, they're losing Patrick Chung, which will hurt. But yeah, I, I think those teams kind of are up there with in terms of on paper uh, what you know is as good as the Browns. But. When you you brought up the Bears, the Bears were twelve and four last year, jumping from a five win team the year before. Um, you know, I, I went through some stuff a couple months, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple months ago, where I looked at teams like the Bears, like the Rams, like the Eagles, the Raiders a few years back when they had their playoff season when Derek Carr got hurt. Teams have made jumps, you know, that from from a five, six, seven, eight win kind of team to like an 11 win 12 win kind of team. Does does this does this set up like that to you? Are there any teams of the recent past who made a jump that these Browns maybe could remind you of or just in general 
is there is there a logic to this that if they go from seven, eight and one to a double digit win team, like would that just sort of make sense based on their roster and the way teams progress? Yeah, it absolutely does make sense. And, and you know, the, the thing that's good about the Browns is that you look at the teams, you know, like the Jaguars, they made that jump to in the AFC championship, you know, game two years ago from a team that I, I can't remember how many wins they had. It was like four or five, you know, but that, that was kind of obviously uh, buoyed by a new coach and a defense that played lights out. Uh, obviously the bears went from, you know, five wins to 12 wins um, and, you know, into the playoffs with, you know, by you know, led by their defense and, and, a, and a new coach, um, you know, look at the, you know, the Vikings still like the, they went from, I think they had like in the single digits and they went into the thir- you know, one thirteen games because of their defense um, and case Keenum playing really well. The, the, all those teams had mediocre quarterbacks though. And so right. when they, their defenses took that step back, they obviously the team is going to take a step back. And we see that same thing that's probably going to happen with, with the bears, unless Mitchell Trubisky can, can make a third year leap, which, you know, is obviously possible as a guy that graded well in his, uh, his final year in college before, you know, when he took off and had a starting spot, spot, but he's really been, you know, what he's shown so far in the NFL is an inaccurate quarterback that was, you know, had a, had an awesome offensive system led by Matt Nagy. The difference for the Browns is they have that quarterback. Like this is a guy, this is not a guy that we just, but just because we liked him coming out of college, we were boosting his numbers or anything like that in, in the NFL. There's plenty of guys we liked in college that are, are failing in the NFL or not grading out as well. Mitchell Trubisky as being one of them. Um, Baker, on the other hand, has three years of grading in college that was at the elite level, two of the, the, the best years we've ever seen from the quarterback position in our grading. And then he followed that up as a rookie in the NFL. So he's the guy that that makes it work for the Browns that you can see him from the single digits. I mean, he took them from zero wins to seven for one, you know, and it could have been more if you had a competent coach for all the entire season. Right. But probably playoffs. And so now you're going to go from the seven wins probably into the double digits, you know, everything goes as, you know, as expected. Um, And it's going to be because a Baker's taking, you know, is going to be better in his second year. And that defense should be, whole heck of a lot better than they were last year that uh jaguar sorry i was choking before by the way i was uh choking on a uh the remnants of a chick-fil-a nugget that was stuck in my throat so it was delicious as it was choking yeah (laughs) um the jaguars were three and 13 in 2016 and jumped to 10 and 6 in 2017 so again that's a that's a seven game jump that's where i was gonna say that's a remarkable jump but like in a lot of ways we know how the NFL is built. Like it's it's kind of not remarkable. It's kind of for the right team that builds the right way. That's kind of how it's supposed to happen, which is going to lead me in to my last point. And I will warn people that uh, the next guest coming up on this, we have some pretty uh, in-depth, pretty long uh, Sashi-related debate. So I don't want to go too far down the path here. But I made note of uh, some of the things that you were noting on your Twitter account, John, um, just the idea of when you enter a situation like with what the Miami Dolphins appear to be doing in terms of tanking this year. And and I had written before, it seemed like in the spring, maybe that's the way they were headed. Um, but then they traded for Josh Rose and it was like, oh, maybe they're not. And then it's like, oh, no, they just traded Laramie Tunsil for a bunch of first round picks. Like they are definitely tanking. Um, and as you noted and, and your your uh, cohort, Kevin Cole, noted, there's like people coming out of the woodwork and saying like, oh, that's great to tank. But like, look at the Browns, the Browns tanked and and but you have to make the right picks. And then people are acting like they didn't make the right picks. 
<laughs> it's amazing. Like, I'm just looking, and I know. So everyone acknowledges the 18 draft, Dorsey's first draft, Baker, Denzel, Nick Chubb. We don't have to go through that. The Browns, four of the Browns' first five picks in 2017 were Miles Garrett, Jabril Peppers, David Njoku, and Larry Ogunjobi. And then Deshaun Kaiser was the miss in there, but he turned into Demarius Randall. And Jabril Peppers, by the way, turned into half of Odell Beckham because it was Peppers and a first-round pick that got you Odell Beckham. So when people act like the Browns tanking, like that they got the losing part right, but they somehow didn't get the picking part right, what are they talking about? So my understanding of where they get it wrong is that they're 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 lumping Sashi's tenure where he they go, all right, we're we're tanking. That was when they started taking twenty sixteen. It's like, all right, we're gonna start accumulating these picks. This is when our tank job starts. They're they're like taking that and adding it to the previous ten years of missing on a bunch of picks where they Just weren't being tanking. bad and incompetent. Right, exactly. They would have like they would have a half-assed plan that would come in there and go, all right, we're gonna we're gonna yeah we're gonna trade back and get an extra first round pick, and then they but the thing is they would all right we we we're we're in our position like in twenty you know two thousand seven when they had the obviously went ten and six missed the playoffs they thought all right well we've got it we can trade we can make moves that we're gonna you know we have we have the team now and then it you you obviously make the wrong picks and you don't have the picks then thereafter because you've traded away picks to move to trade up and they're they're conflating all of that with what sashi did to what dorsey has done after after sashi i think that's where they're they're coming from because right like like even even sashi you know he had 12 picks in both of those years it, you, you still you still got like really good players at it you're talk, not even talking about 2016 where you were able to get joe schobert and richard higgins among other players and they're going to be like Schobert was a pro bowler Higgins. Everybody's talking about this year, how he's like going to have a monster year and then command nine to $10 million a year. Like I, I saw that today. And it's like, this, this is, these are the players that Sashi also took. Yes. Sashi missed on a lot of players. A big one was obviously Corey Coleman, but like, you know, he set it up that like, Hey, I know that I'm not going to pick all the right players. So I'm going to accumulate all these picks. Dorsey then obviously nailed on on the picks when he got it for his first draft. So it's you know it's these people are conflating two different multiple different regimes, and the whole context of it was the Miami tank job, comparing it to the Browns tank job. And yes, Sashi missed on a lot of picks, but he hit on some too, and also turned into what we have on the team now, which on paper looks like a top ten team that could be a top five team. And like, it's like, if you don't understand that the Dorsey draft that changed the Browns potentially forever was bait was built on tanking because that's how you got the number one pick. And that's how you had traded down and traded and got an extra pick that turned out to be number four. And then if you weren't tanking, you wouldn't have bought Brock Osweiler for $16 million that turned into Nick Chubb. If, if you don't understand that, that abs- that was like the fulfillment. Mayfield and Miles Garrett are the fulfillment of tanking, and so is yeah. Denzel Ward, and so is Nick Chubb, and so is half of Odell Beckham. Like I don't even know. I don't know what they're talking about. Justin Gilbert is not tanking. Brandon nope. Whedon and Johnny Manziel were not tanking. That was just sucking. 
you have to yeah. able be able to differentiate sucking and tanking. And guess what? The tanking works. Now, does Dorsey get credit for like finishing off the tank and executing it? Of course he does, but it's still part of the tank. Yes, exactly. You know, and it, <gasps> it, you're exactly right. And it's the the whole tank job is to 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 give yourself more ammunition so that you can fire at a the quarterback position and build a roster. You know, what Sashi's plan was was maybe not executed to to a T and perfectly by you know obviously missing on like Corey Coleman uh, could have you know obviously picked better players at in early rounds there, but like. You know, and, and maybe maybe people want wanted him to take Mahomes instead of instead of and trading up to get Mahomes instead of trading back when Watson was there for Peppers, but then Peppers turned into OBJ, and now you have like, would you rather have OBJ and Baker or Deshaun Watson? Like, I don't right. think that's a, that, there's there's no question about what combo you want there, uh, because you're not getting OBJ without Baker, and you're not getting because because you're not getting OBJ without the trade back from twelve to 27, 25 or something, whatever they picked, um, uh, peppers. So, right. Right. Like it's, it's, it's unbelievable to me that like, they can't, I don't know if they just don't want to believe that, or they just don't want to think about that because the Miami tank job, like, like, and even the, with Miami, like they traded for, you know, trading for Rosen, that's like good. Like they're looking for the next quarterback. Like if you're in this, in a position and you know that you have, all right, we don't have the quarterback. Like you didn't, you had Ryan Tannehill as your quarterback. There wasn't, they, if they didn't, they knew that they weren't going to be able to get up to uh, number one to take Kyler Murray. Say they, they really loved Kyler Murray, but saw zero other quarterbacks in this draft as the franchise type quarterback. You're looking to the future go, all right, what is coming down the pipeline that we can find that the next quarterback, you know, and we're going to take a flyer on a second rounder for, for Josh Rosen. Why not? Right. So, but we're going to take a, we're going to look down the pipeline, see what's coming. All right, Tua Tago Viola is coming next year. Dude looks awesome. He's played. He's been lights out his entire career in college at Alabama. The you know, in the prime time and on spotlight and everything like that. So that might be your guy if you tank this year. You get first row overall pick. Take that guy. But then there's also that Trevor Lawrence, who's who's a true freshman last year that lit it up. Obviously, he had a bad first game this year, but like that's what you do as as an evaluator. You look down the pipeline. All right. Are there guys there that we can hey, Miami fans, just bear with us for two years. Trevor Lawrence is the next Dan Marino. I think I think Miami fans they're they've been searching for the next quarterback since nineteen ninety nine when Dan Marino retired. So I think they can understand, like, hey, we see this guy as the next Dan Marino. You know, like that's where they're at. Like that's what they're doing and it's smart. Like obviously it's gonna be a struggle and you know, maybe they'll win more games than what the Browns did, which I actually kind of anticipate because I think, you know, uh, the coach that was for the Browns was a big reason why they went one in 31. So you think the Dolphins should hire Hugh? Would that be the last part? Of <laughs> Brian be, Flores be... is too competent. Brian Flores, you're too smart. And together you're fired. We're bringing in Hugh Jackson, tanker extraordinaire. Right. But this is the thing, like, it, like, it's hard. It's hard to like, you can't purposely lose games in the NFL. It's really difficult to actually do that. Um, I mean, you can do things like run it 70, 70% of the time. That would obviously lower your win expectancy quite a bit, but you can't, you're not going to ask players to, to play less hard. They're going to go out there and try to win. All the coaches are going to go out there and try to win. 
So I think, and you know, you're, you're going one in 31 was kind of fluky. Like, I don't, you just, that just doesn't happen in the NFL. It really just, it doesn't. So usually when you go one, say you go one in 15, you, you usually win like five more games the next year. They obviously didn't. So like what Miami is doing is that if they actually luck into, let's say five wins this year, which is very easily possible with NFL players, they still have the ammunition to go, look, and that's our guy. We can now trade this horde of picks that we have to go get that guy. If we think that guy is the real deal. No, that's you're right. why you think. And, and and we actually had the discussion in the interview that's coming up next, but that's part of, you know, if the Browns hadn't been bad enough to get Baker, then all of a sudden you end up packaging the pick that you used to pick Denzel. If you would have had the third and fourth pick instead of the first, then maybe you package stuff because you've, you've been acquiring extra assets for the moment when you're going to go up and get your guy that I think it's not, it's not always trading. It's trading down, trading down, trading down, but then, when the moment is right to trade up, then you have the ammunition to do it. So, uh, yeah. and I would just say, John, it will, we'll end with this because I could talk to a guy like you for six hours. Um, <laughs> w- would you say if you were advising Miami fans right now, let's say that they are preparing for um, two miserable NFL seasons, but the end result is Trevor Lawrence and that we would compare that to one in 31, but the end result was Baker Mayfield. Is it worth it? Yes, absolutely is. Because do you want, you don't want to be stuck in quarterback purgatory. Browns were stuck in quarterback purgatory for 25 years or whatever, you know, since, since it came back in the league in 19, you know, 1999. And they've been in quarterback purgatory since Dan Marino retired. It is absolutely worth it. When you get that guy, it makes everything better because then then like the way the Browns did it, that they didn't need to package up the picks to go get their guy. They just sucked into it. And then they go, Hey, this is our guy. Let's take all this ammunition that we have and go get like the team and put them around him and meet like with OBJ. And, and, you know, obviously it was, there was Jarvis Landry that came in and people want to obviously criticize Jarvis Landry, but, uh, for, for, you know, how he plays the game and everything like that. But he's obviously a leader on a team. It's just like, yes, it absolutely is worth it because look at where the Browns are from like, I mean, beginning of last year, there was like excitement about the team, but now it's like, Hey, Super Bowl, And maybe that's, you know, obviously maybe two, maybe a year too soon. We'll see, but it's, in, in my opinion, you, it's, it sucks when you let go through it. It really does. It's, it's hard to go through that. Like I, I remember like, you know, at, at working for PFF, I'm really can't, I don't often talk about we as a, as a fan of the, of the fan base of Browns, but I remember that one in 15 season when they actually were able to win against the, the chargers, like there was, it was like a whole weight that was lifted off. Um, but then like, you know, I was actually immediately after the win, I was like, wait, now we don't have the first overall pick anymore. What's the right. whole point of like going through all this suck? And, and the 49ers now have the first overall pick and then they won because they they were too dumb to like try to they, they tried winning or something like that. So like, you know, it, it it's you have to be able to, to do something to get that first overall pick. And I think, you know, Miami fans, it's worth it. I long I, that, I went way over winded for that. But. Yes, it's worth it. Well, and and in conclusion, you are correct. That was the correct answer. And here's the thing: 
it doesn't guarantee anything because people still blow picks. You might end up with Jamarcus Russell. But if you're a franchise that's been stuck and the Browns were stuck and the Dolphins have been stuck and they had Ryan Tannehill for a decade and when did it, what did it really get him? It just made him like slightly, you know, better than bad and less than mediocre. And what's that really worth? If you're stuck, it's worth the shot. And so it's not the right, it maybe is not the right thing for every single franchise, but if you haven't yet found a different way to get over the hump and you've been swimming in uh, five and 11, six and 10, seven and nine, eight and eight, you might have to do something drastic to get out of it. So the Browns did that and it worked. And the Dolphins, if they're going to try that now, I think it's worth a shot. And you keep your fingers crossed that it works as well as it did for the Browns. John, if the people want to find you, where can they find you and where can they find your work? Yeah, so on Twitter at John Costco 3, which is J-O-H-N-K-O-S-K-O, the number three. Um, that's where I'm, I do, obviously, I, I give my takes. A lot of them, some of them good, a lot of them bad. And uh, also, I do write occasionally for the website at www.pff.com. Uh, and we actually, you know, for those who are fans of, of you know, PFF, we have uh, subscriptions that you can purchase or whatever and i have discounts that you could have if you would uh, message me on on twitter i can get you hooked up with discounts there there you go go ahead and get the just discount from john john i would like you to know that i am also a member of the lots of takes some of them good most of them bad i am also a member of that <laughs> club so i can relate very much um john love your work love your uh, your insight thank you so much for joining us again on takes by the lake and we will definitely have you back uh, sometime down the line my pleasure, Doug. Thank you very much. Here with Daryl Ryder on Takes by the Lake. Daryl has been covering the Browns for how long? Browns exclusively since 2007, but been in Cleveland since uh, 1998. So every person I've talked to, um, fan, media member, otherwise, I'm always asking the way you're looking at the Browns now for this season compared to how you felt or thought things about this team in other preseasons. Does this feel similar to other times when you thought, yeah, these guys might be good finally, or does this feel different? It feels different because they are. I'm pretty confident that they are going to be good. You know, uh, years past, you'd kind of talk yourself into, you know, certain players or how good they were going to be, uh, you know, what the expectations were. But when you look at this roster and the way it's been constructed, the Pro Bowl caliber talent, the elite level talent, which they have been mostly for 20 years deficient of having, um, it, 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 it's fair to expect that this team is going to win a lot of games this year and fight for a playoff spot, if not not only make the playoffs, Doug, but actually win a game in January, potentially. I mean, you're talking about stuff that hasn't happened in 30 years that they could accomplish because they do have the talent to realize that. The question is, is can that talent come together and actually achieve it? So I'm at 12-4. and four. I've been at 12-4 and four since December, so I'm as in on this thing as anybody <laughs> is. Um, I, like people who thought I'm stupid and crazy for 12-4, and four, like this offensive line has been like slowly like maybe peeling me back a little bit. I'm not changing. I'm not changing. But as we head into this season, they just added a couple more guys on the offensive line. They, Eric Cush is going to be the starter, Freddie just said, on Monday um, for the opener. Like... How? Where? What is your level of concern with this offensive line, and 
is it reasonable that maybe it is perhaps slightly shaking the faith of someone like me who said 12 and 4? Well, I think the good news is that Baker Mayfield succeeds most when stuff is going you-know-where, and um, that helps. He's not a pure pocket passer. He's very good in the pocket. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when stuff breaks down, he has the athleticism, the quickness, the vision to be looking down the field and be able to make something positive happen when negative things occur. And I think that that, it's that it factor that we're always talking about with quarterbacks that we've been waiting since Bernie to see. And you already see that in Baker. So am I concerned about the line? Yeah, because I think it's probably one of the weakest spots on this team. But you have a quarterback that I think that could cover up that wart. Uh, and, and, and you just hope that, you know, something doesn't happen where he gets blindsided or whatnot and, and gets injured. By the way, I was at 10 at 6 from uh, the moment they traded for Odell. Uh, I'm steadfast in 10 and 6. I think 10 and 6 is good enough to get a wild card. Uh, I, I just, I look at the first half of the schedule, Doug, and it's very tough. I think that if they come out of those first eight games at 4 and 4, I know the entire city's going to be freaking out. You're going to be freaking out. I'm going to be freaking out. Everyone's, you know, all the talk shows, all my coworkers going to be going nuts on the air. But I look at the back half of the schedule and I see a six, and I see 6 and 2. So, uh, which then gets you to your, your 10 and 6. I, I think this is going to be a very good second half of the season football team just because the schedule's favorable. Everyone will have had time to kind of get their, you know, what together. And, uh, but I, I think 10 and 6, going from seven wins to 10 wins in the NFL, that, that's a quantum leap. And I realized that last year was a quantum leap too. They went from zero wins to seven wins. And they ended up winning in the second half of that season more than they did the previous three years combined. Um, I, I just I think that ten wins is a very fair bar. I understand your optimism, but I think maybe you're setting the bar a little unfairly high just from the standpoint of it's it's so hard to go from that seven to double digits in the NFL. I'm trying to remember. I did the uh, I did a thing a couple months ago about the teams. I think the threshold was four teams that had increased their win total by four wins from one season to the next, and it's not common but you do see the blips where um the bears i think fit that i think the rams on this path fit that i think the eagles might have fit that on their path that when you have some of these teams that you go from there is there is a a, a i don't know if it's a plan or if it just happens there are teams that go from like awful to mediocre to really good and it's like a two-year process and if you believe that last year was that mediocre step it's not easy and it shouldn't be assumed there is some precedent for it but then you know again there are a lot of teams that fall short of that too i want to ask you i want to get off the field a little bit because i think again i think um you and i agree on some things and i think we disagree on some things and i mean i just like that i like to argue about the browns i said at cleveland.com we we cover every aspect of the browns so much i said we just need to argue sometimes i want to ask you about coaches first because you have covered far more browns coaches than i have me dougie was as soon as i started coming up here at all i was out on you fast mm-hmm. and as it turns out correctly uh I was uncertain on Freddie at the hire. I felt like, did they just look around the building and say, well, this guy's down at the end of the hall. Let's hire him. The more that I feel like I've gotten to be around Freddie, that we've all gotten to be around Freddie, I think I'm 
in on Freddie, at least like, I don't think it was a bad hire. Who knows? But I feel like this guy's never had this opportunity, but it's not because he's unqualified. I feel like maybe he just didn't fit the mold of some people and great for the Browns for giving him an opportunity. So here's what I, I want to ask you. With the coaches you have covered, how many good head coaches do you feel like you have covered with the Browns? Guys, that, and not based on their record, but like Mike Pettin, I think people think is a good defensive coordinator. Right. Like, do you think a guy like that could have been a better, a good head coach in a better circumstance? Or are there guys who have run through here that you just thought in the end, no, no, that guy, Shermer, Chadzinski, whatever, no, I just didn't see it as a head coach? Or did they fail because of the structure of the Browns? Well, I'll just go through them. Romeo Cornell was a, a player's coach. Uh, he had that grandpa-esque quality quality to him even when he would come and, and talk to us and I think that maybe some of the veterans uh, that was a very veteran laden team that he led kind of took advantage of that a little bit uh, Eric Mangini I would say is probably the best head coach the Browns have hired since I've been covering the team full time and I realized that he didn't have a lot of success but had he subjugated his ego and been willing to have a legitimate general manager to pick his players for him I really believe the Browns could have had a good team, and they could have possibly maybe even won a Super Bowl. Again, assuming that you the GM picks the good players and, and whatnot. But he was a control freak, and he just, I mean, he was picking paint colors in the building. Like, that's how much of a control freak he really was. Um, and the only thing that's really survived is the stereo system they have out on the field that we hear. <laughs> that is the Eric Mangini Memorial Stereo that uh, we still get to hear. But uh, I think he was, like, the best coach. Um, Rob Jadzinski, I think, was a little in over his head. Nice guy, just not the right fit. Pat Shermer, yeah, you're, you're seeing what's going on in New York. <laughs> it speaks for itself. Hugh, I was in on Hugh the first year. I, I admit, I, I, my, my BS detector is usually pretty good, and I got fooled. He fooled me his first year, and then about midway through the off season, his second year, I was like, yeah, this, I don't know that this is going to really work out well. Um, Freddie, what I like most about Freddie is he is not afraid to just say what's on his mind. Now. I think that there is going to come a time this season, Doug, where he's going to say something that he regrets and he's going to have to maybe walk something back or whatever. But I, I respect his candor. I, I respect that he's just, hey, you know what? I, I just want to coach football. I don't think, you know, the problem the Browns have had in this building for, for so long has been the GM and the head coach fighting with each other and, and power struggles and bickering over players. And I don't think Freddie's ambitious enough to worry about that. And I know that has a little bit of a negative connotation when I use ambitious. It's not. It's. I don't. I know. Mean, I know what you're saying. Yeah. You know, he's gonna. He, I think Freddie's just gonna stay in his lane and work with the players that he has. He trusts John Dorsey. John Dorsey has a track record, a proven track record of successfully acquiring talent, and I think that that helps. And then you look at what Dorsey has done in his short time here, using all those assets he was given to work with. There's no reason not to believe in John Dorsey. So a lot of the problems that have occurred between coaches and GMs and the festering negativity that would spill over, I just I don't see that occurring with these guys. And to me, that's a quantum leap forward for this franchise to be able to go where it wants to go. And it seems like it's how much just this, the, the structure of it that 
instead of it's right instead of having a head coach and a GM that are reporting to to Jimmy Haslam and D Haslam equally. There seems to be no doubt that John Dorsey is running the football show. John Dorsey led the coaching search. They found Freddie Kitchens, and there's there's a structure that w- does not encourage it. The infighting, and again, you covered the history of the infighting far more than me, but it wasn't by accident. It was almost by creation that you you necessitated infighting the way once you got Hugh and Sashi, who came at it from different perspectives, and then they were on equal footing, you were dead. Yeah, Mike Pettin and Ray Farmer right there, too. Um, one thing that always really baffled me, and it's changed now, uh, and I, get, I give the Haslam's credit for this, Changing the structure was instrumental, and in having the head coach now report to John Dorsey, I think that that's important because what you had happen, and, and we witnessed it every day in practice, Jimmy Haslam would stroll onto the practice field, and there he's talking to Mike Patton, or he's talking to uh, talking with uh, Hugh Jackson, and it's like, wait a minute, shouldn't these guys be coaching practice? Why do they have to spend time during practice to be, you know, talking to you? And I just, I never thought that a good thing could really come of that. Uh, and especially when you have young owners like the Haslam's who, and they have admitted numerous times, hey, we're kind of learning on the fly here. We're, we admit our mistakes. We haven't been perfect. Um, we've been a part of the problems that this franchise has had. But, you know, to their credit, they've never been afraid to say that they were wrong and to make corrections rather quickly. And unfortunately, that has compounded into some of that volatility that we uh, saw over, uh, you know, the course of time. But I give the Haslam's credit because they realized, I think, the structure needed to change a little bit. And, and they did that. I mean, they, they're the owners. They can do whatever they want. And they could have left this the way they had it, Doug. But I, I give them a lot of credit for being willing to adjust how they handle things. And that's the thing of, of I have, I hate the same old brown stuff when it comes up from national people, when it comes up from fans, whatever, of, you know, as you said, it's the building's the same, the colors are the same, maybe the sound system on the practice field is the same, but there have been fundamental, that's a fundamental shift, that it's not just crossing your fingers that you hope it's better this time around. It's a thing of, Okay, well, we changed how we do business. And then you say, we got a franchise quarterback. We, you know, like, there are things in place that have never been in place for the last 20 years that lead you to have the belief of it's not just like, oh, well, it's Murphy's Law or whatever, the reverse of that. Like, it finally has to go right because it's gone wrong so long. They actually took steps to make this right, that, that there's a... I think there's a foundation to the confidence for the people who are around this every day. Yeah, I mean, they, they changed the structure, and then they brought in a GM. Uh, I realize he inherited Miles, but he brought in a GM that could find the franchise quarterback that brought in a once-in-a-generation wide receiver to complement said franchise quarterback, uh, brought in the number two complement right away from Miami. Like he took, think about this. Deshaun Kaiser got cut by Green Bay over the weekend, and... The Browns got Demarius Randall for Deshaun Kaiser. Demarius Randall next year, odds that the Browns are actually going to be able to keep him, probably not that great just because he's going to go out and be the best safety on the open market that's available. But they got Demarius Randall for Deshaun Kaiser. And I, I think it's, of all the stuff Dorsey's done, I think that's the best thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because well, a lot of the stuff is sort of like, well, you executed a pick or whatever. Like, that's out of nowhere. You turned a dude who, like... Once Kaiser was done here, it was like, yeah, it's not him. Right. He was a lost asset. 
and you turned him into a, a borderline Pro Bowl caliber safety. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what Dorsey has done, is he has seen opportunities around the league with these elite players, and he's taken advantage. I still think they fleeced the New York Giants for Odell and Olivier Vernon. You got think about that. You got two Pro Bowlers that cost you. Yes, I realize you lost your 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 Pro Bowl caliber right guard in 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 Zeitler, but it only cost you Jabril Peppers and two picks, number seventeen and number ninety five. <laughs> I can. I, what else can I get for a trade like that? I mean, I, I still can't believe Dorsey pulled that off. So. Um, you have a GM that that's a, I, I like his aggressiveness. Even you know this during cut down time over the weekend, where you know I halfway through training camp saying, "Man, what an embarrassment of riches they have a wide receiver." Then turn around, they only kept four of the guys they had and brought in two others. You know, and I that I mean that's just that's just what really good GMs do. And I uh, I can't give Dorsey uh, enough credit for how he has been able to capitalize on what he was given, and that was basically an embarrassment of riches when it comes to draft picks and it comes to salary cap space and and and, and those type of things. But the cupboard was also pretty bare when he got here, and that's why you saw him pretty much gut the roster. And you know, Miles Garrett, Larry Ogan, Joby, those are probably be like the last men standing from. Uh, the players that he inherited. So, all right, so I said we start this off. That's, uh, you know, I want to have someone to disagree with, and we've gone like 15 minutes and basically agreed about everything. So we're dancing around the thing we disagree with because you sent out one of those tweets the other day that when you send those tweets out, since I debate, should I have like a Twitter fight with this guy right now? And it's like, no, that doesn't serve any purpose. We'll put it on a podcast. What? And, and I do that intentionally. And now it's fun, okay? See, all the bad stuff's in the, in the rearview mirror now. You know, I, I'm in the process of compiling, uh, this is a new bit that I'm doing, the bucket list. Like last year, I did a bucket list, and it was like a mile long. It started with, win a effing game. Let's start there. Uh, then, let's see, can we win a division game? Uh, can they win two in a row? Are we uh, Win a game on, like, I had all these, like, little things, you know? Uh, and they checked them all off to their credit. They, they did check them all off, so I'm, like, trying to come up with all these things for this year. Well, they... they you know, knocked everything off the, the list last year. What can I come up this year? But, you know, I, I it, now that you've gone through the, it's it, now that you, now that the worst is behind us, I think we can look back and kind of start to chuckle, you know, like we were talking about the dysfunction earlier. Mm-hmm. Like now that is, oh, those were the good old days. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we can, we can have a more positive outlook and have some fun, uh, debating and talking about stuff that happened before. So I always, I know that you and Chris Fedor and there's a, you know, obviously a segment of Browns fans that just absolutely love everything that Sashi Brown did. And I, I thought he did a tremendous job getting the assets. My argument is he had like 30 picks in two years and the first draft class has already been shot. And there's a couple of guys from 17 that might stick around. But that, that's where I come in on the Sashi War. He did his job, yes. His, his job was to light the match, burn the house down, collect the assets. The problem was, and this is why he's still not here, or this is why he's not here, is that the use of those assets was, I think, a little bit of an issue that he was acquiring. That's why they brought in Dorsey. But you don't say little bit. You don't usually say little bit of an issue. You set him on fire. Here, here. <laughs> so, and, and this is, and I, and I want to do this. I, I may do this. For instance, for instance. There are two guys left from the 2016 draft, as you pointed out. Right. 
Joe Schobert. Of, of the 20 guys they picked, there's two guys left. But, yes. But, but, but to also like to, like, the, the whole point is that they acquire more picks. So, because they believe the draft is a difficult thing and you are going to miss, so the more shots you take, it's almost like I think if you try to go by percentage with them, that's sort of not fair because, like, well, we're just putting up more shots. We're worried about how many shots we make, how many baskets. So if we take 10 shots and you take seven, and if you're three for seven and we're three for 10, they would say, well, it's the same thing. That's what, whole, that's what trading down is all right. about. Dorsey, for instance, and I'm going to try to look this up if I have the time. I think the Chiefs had nine picks in 2016. Do you know how many players are left on the Chiefs right now from the 2016 draft of their nine picks? I'm not going to make it. It's three. I was going to say I was going to I was going to say it was like I knew the answer had to be one or two. So it's not. I mean, it's not seven. Right. And one of them's Tyreek Hill, who uh, one of the things that and I, I what I don't want to do is I'm not anti John Dorsey. I think sometimes people give him too much credit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of credit. Well, he's to begin. gonna get a lot of credit here because it's been so bad for so long. So, like everything he's doing right now, see, and and, and you're right. Um, it's it's like he's parting the waters and turning water into wine, and and you know, multiplying the the loaves of bread and you know, fish and all that type of stuff because it's been so bad. We're right. we're used to the GM blowing the top ten picks and trading down, and those picks not panning out, and you know. Julio Jones trade is exhibit A of, of that, you know, where you get a bunch of picks and you got nothing out of that trade with all those picks. So, um, so yes, you're right. The credit that Dorsey's getting for what he's done already might be a little blown out of proportion, but it's been so bad so long for here. And there's been so many opportunities. You know, the Browns have burned the house down multiple times and acquiring those picks and whatnot. They just, they never cashed in, you know. Um, and now you're seeing a GM that's starting to cash some of those picks in. Right now, uh, he is in his first two rounds through two drafts. He, in my opinion, he's five of six. I don't think the Cleveland Browns find, found five players in the first two rounds of the draft the previous 17 years combined. And I say that a little tongue in cheek, but that's how, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. it, it, the, the lens with which we're looking through the situation is a little different. It's just, okay, we've had 18 years of, crap in the draft we're just we're not getting anything out of it okay so now he's had two drafts and all of a sudden you got baker mayfield denzel ward greedy williams um uh nick chubb you you just you see that immediate talent and you're like that guy can play that guy can play that guy and that's the difference when i watch practice between this year and years past is like i go and i go practicing that guy can freaking play that guy can play whereas you're for him like mm, all right, he, okay he might you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so the lens is a little different. So, I will give you that. Yes, maybe the John Dorsey adulation right now—it's literally to build the statue. But in comparison to what's been here before, I certainly understand why fans are so excited about him. No, I'm, and I'm excited too. It's like one of the things is if you're saying he's five for six, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the first two rounds of both years in my head. Like he had the Ward pick because that was left right. to him. And and the one thing is. And then he had the Chubb pick because that's the Brock Osweiler pick that everybody made fun of Sashi for making. And if he doesn't make that, then we're sitting here right now with saying John Dorsey's second round from that year is Austin Corbett. Right. And and the Austin Corbett, and I've been hammering the Austin Corbett thing a lot, and some people think I'm hammering it too much, but you you can maybe forgive it a little bit because he picked Chubb two picks later. And it's like, well, that where do you think that came from? And if you think Sashi didn't get anything done in 2016, Denzel Ward is a project, is a product of the 2016 draft, as is Jabril Peppers, who then became part of the Odell trade. So it's like, 
if we go through and start saying, well, all these guys that Sashi drafted are gone, it's like, well, because part of the assets that John Dorsey gets credit for were, were Sashi reduced his own assets to give Dorsey more assets, and Jabril Peppers is half of Odell Beckham. Again, they, the Giants probably should have asked for more, but they wanted two first-round picks. They viewed Peppers as one of those two first-round picks. So the the thing that I am always curious about, and and I don't know if people want to listen to us have Sashi. I, I could have a Sashi. I've tried not to have <laughs> Sashi Wars because I know people, there's a segment of people who don't want to listen to it. And the thing is, too, and, and at some point we'll all get off of this because there's the Sashi people and the people who didn't think Sashi do it. They're Browns. They're Browns. Whether Ray, Far- I mean, Ray Farmer drafted Joel Batonio, right? I mean, it's they're Browns now. That's the one and, guy and, Ray found. Him and, and Christian Kirksey. And even the idea of like people want to wear John Dorsey jerseys and stuff. It's like I hope this franchise is at the point where it's like we don't have to talk about the GM because you're just doing. On some level, GMs are like umpires. Like if they're doing a good job, you don't talk about them. So. As I, nobody wins, nobody, no town has a parade for the GM of the year trophy. You just want the Browns to do right things. But here's the heart of the matter that I think I always wonder about with people who seem to disagree with Sashi, whatever, however you want to phrase that. Do you think they had to go one in 31 to get here? No. I, I, that, I think, and I understand there's the Hugh Jackson factor in there. You had a really bad coach. I get that. Um, and I understood initially what they were doing. Uh, they were stuck in the four and 12, five and 11 quagmire every year. It is, you know, the four and 12, five and 11, four and 12, five and 11, you know, and they, they weren't going anywhere. And they said, you know what? What we're doing right now, and we have a bunch of guys that are middle of the road players that are becoming free agents. Okay. And so what we're going to do is we're going to let those guys go bye-bye. Because if we keep them, well, if we keep them, we're still 4-12, and 5-11. and 11, okay? Agree. I agree with everything you just said. Okay. And so what Sashi says, you know what? I need to clear the table off, and I need to reset everything. And I didn't have a problem with that. I just, I had, I my f- biggest fundamental problem was that it was extreme. It was historically extreme, embarrassing losing for a franchise that that's all they've done. Like it, but it, never like that, right? It, I mean, no team has ever gone four and forty-four over three seasons, or had a four-win, forty-nine loss stretch like the Browns did, and that's that's where I thought it was too much. I thought you could rebuild and still win four to five games. Now, if you do that, you can't get the first picks in the draft. You don't get Miles, or you don't get Baker, right? And 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 I recognize that aspect of it as well, and that's why I said I concede that Hugh Jackson was a factor in the extreme losing. Um, but I also, you know, while I have fun with the you and others with the, with the whole Sashi Wars thing, I recognize what Sashi did. I understood what Sashi was doing, and the accumulation of assets. Again, not the first time that that's happened with this team. Eric Mangini did it first thing he did. Okay, um, but it, the, the, to me, the fear was: Would Sashi pick the right players going forward using all those assets that we talked about that turned into Odell Beckham Jr. and Nick Chubb and, and, and whatnot? And I just, I never had the confidence. I had the confidence he could do that, burn the house down, gather all the assets, reset the table. I never had his, I never had the confidence in his football talent evaluation. And that's, you know, when you're not sure that Carson Wentz is a franchise quarterback. And at the time, I wrote, I defended it, and people still throw it in my face to this day, Doug. I wrote that was a smart move to trade that pick and get all those picks that they did, even 
with Carson Wentz turning into what he's turned into with the, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles. I defended that decision. Uh, and Browns fans remember I defended that decision because then I go back and I criticize him. Darn it, you should have known that Carson Wentz could play. And that's, that's the, that's where the fine line of my criticism comes in is the fact he wasn't able to identify Carson Wentz was a franchise quarterback and they had the pick to take him. And I do say the thing that I think is, um, part of that is I, the one thing that I thought was Sashi and I, I feel like I've always tried to say like the Corey Coleman pick was bad. Mm-hmm. Like nobody defends the actual selection of Corey Coleman. Corey now, Coleman over Michael Thomas. I just, I can't excuse and, that. And, and we can, and if you Google, I, I also don't like the why don't the Browns draft Ohio State guys thing. Cause like <laughs> just because they're two hours down the road doesn't mean you should draft them extra. It just so happens that it's a that, football factory down there and, and every year they have eight guys that become pro bowlers, but, <laughs> and, and they got in a weird spot. Like I could have told you Brian Robisky was not worth the second round pick when they did that. It's like, I'm not a scout. But when I watch these guys play every snap of their college careers, right. I get some feel for these guys. But you could tell Denzel Ward was going to be an all-pro, couldn't you? I would not have taken him four. Really? Okay. Uh, just because he's little. And I have a huge story coming on Denzel. He's one of the best dudes around. Um, and he's a really good player. I hope he stays healthy his whole career. But that has to be a factor in your that is evaluation my, of taking a guy at four. Now, so let's. My sl- only concern with him is is what you just said, and, health. And, and so, for instance... The Browns in 16. Do you care about this? Too bad. You The first 15 minutes was for people who just want to think about the Browns now. This 13 minutes is for me and Sashi Wars. <laughs> in 2016, the Browns, after they traded down twice, yep. they needed a receiver. to take. We're going to get the first receiver off the board. I thought that thinking, we're going to take the first receiver at 15, was reasonable. Yeah, not the worst thought in the world. That receiver class is pretty effed up. Josh Doxson just got released. Laquan Treadwell has not done much. There was some disagreement about like who the best receiver was. There turns out there was not an Odell taken in the first round. The Odell fell to 47. Yep. So again, I understand that I've done it myself. He's not the only one that missed on Michael Thomas. There were 31 other teams that uh, did. And I love the game of let's run through all the guys the Browns could have drafted, but could put together one hell of a Super Bowl winner. The but a lot of the times it's like, well, this guy went in the fifth round. And then, well, you could make that list for every team in the league. Tom in- Brady went in the sixth including, round. Including, time. including the team that drafted him. Because the Patriots also passed on Tom Brady five times. <laughs> so the Saints, to take Michael Thomas there, and you can go find it. Of all the stuff I wrote, Michael, I swear, I said Browns, of all the times, I don't believe in this Ohio State stuff, but I'm telling you, if you ever wanted an Ohio State guy, this is the guy. I was standing on the Michael Thomas table before the draft as much as anybody, and a lot of people were. And if I had known Sashi Brown at all right then, you, you, know how, told him. you know how sometimes you hear stories of like, well, this old sports writer told the GM, and it's like, I would have been like, I'm unbiased, but on behalf of the people of Cleveland that I write for, I'm telling you, take this dude. The NFL has a bad read on Michael Thomas. Yeah. But when you go through and you look, for instance, that's a screwed up receiver draft. So they screwed it up. They screwed it up. But they weren't the only people to screw it up. Here's a point about the Dorsey thing, for instance. He gets a lot of credit for taking Denzel Ward, number four, right? If he had taken Bradley Chubb, number five, I mean, if he had taken Bradley Chubb, who went fifth, right. if he had taken Chubb four, do you think John Dorsey would be getting credit for a good pick right now? Probably yes. That's who most people thought he was going to take. Yeah. And, and Chubb has been good. Yeah, he has. And and then you maybe you don't have to trade for Olivier Vernon if, if you do something like that. And if he had taken Quentin Nelson at four, who went at six, right. 
would he be getting credit right now for taking a good guy at four? That guy was an all-pro guard yeah. as a rookie. Yeah. Uh, Maybe. And, and we're not sitting here crying about Austin Corbett. So, and... Now, and maybe right now, they're starting Terrence Mitchell and Greedy Williams at corner, and people are probably saying, they're okay. They're good enough there. So, part of my thing is... Except for now, Greedy Williams isn't even going to start. No, I know, but also... <laughs> all, all, but, but then it's like on the list of like all the great John Dorsey draft picks is, well, they picked a rookie corner who didn't beat out Terrence Mitchell, so like I'm not saying, I'm not saying that's a bad pick. Right. Greedy is great. I might have looked. I know there were a bunch of tackles and guards. I think there were some offensive linemen who went off the board in the late 30s and 40s that I was looking at there. And I get it. I'm not sure who they should have reached for on the offensive line instead of Greedy. But also, you know, Greedy's not Deion Sanders, at least not yet. So, like, so my thing in the end is, yeah, they blew it on Corey Coleman. I don't argue that. Yeah, Denzel Ward looks like a good pick. I don't argue that. But I think there might have been more opportunity to make a good pick at four that Dorsey did, more opportunity to make a bad pick at 15 that Sashi did. And as long as they didn't take Josh Allen, I think Sashi would have picked between Baker and Darnold. I think he might have taken Darnold. I think he might have taken Baker. I think if Darnold were here, I think people would still be excited Baker was the right choice. Yes. John Dorsey will always get credit for making the right choice because a lot of people in the league would not have picked Baker. And that's why he – and, and not to cut you off, but I think that's why Dorsey should get credit because he he did not go with a popular pick. He went with the guy he thought was going to be the best player 100%. against all the measurables, against all the narratives out there. You know what I'm saying? And, and that takes stones to do. It does. But I think Sashi might have picked him. But if not, I think he would have picked Darnold, and I think Darnold might also be good. I don't think anybody here would have picked Rosen, and I don't think anybody here would have picked Allen. So they would have picked between the right two guys. So, like, and here's my last part of this. Again, I hope if you don't like this, I hope you've turned it off by now. Do you believe if Sashi had been here, he would have taken a quarterback with the number one pick in the 2018 draft? I hope so. My, and again, and not to belabor the point, Sashi's a very intelligent man. I think the job he got with the Washington Wizards is brilliant because he's not picking players. That's not his that's not his ballpark. That's not his arena, okay? Picking talent isn't his thing. Looking at data, being able to extrapolate advantages from that data and to put those wheels in motion to use that to your advantage, those are his strengths. Working contracts, cap, all that. That's what he's good at. Okay? So I'm not going to argue that you know completely that you know, Sashi was like a complete bust and wasted time or whatever. I can objectively look at the good stuff that he did, okay, and say he did phenomenal job. He's John Dorsey could not have come in here and accomplished what he did without Sashi setting that table for him. I just feel much better about John Dorsey picking the players to use those assets rather than Sashi Brown because that's John Dorsey's wheelhouse: picking players. Does that make sense to you? Uh, yeah, I know what you're saying, but also, like, what did you think of to get Garrett Peppers in Joku in well, the first round in 17? Well, good, not good? Garrett was a layup. If you didn't take Miles Garrett there... Yep. I mean, it's just it's hard for me that it's like... And I, know, I, I don't disagree with you, but to give, like, Sashi no credit for Garrett, but yet Dorsey gets a boatload of credit for Baker is, like... Well, because there's a lot, there were a lot more questions about Baker than Miles. And, and, but also, they were gonna take a quarterback there, 
And if they had taken Darnold, I don't think that would have been a bad pick. Yeah, if my I don't memory, think it would have been wrong. If my memory serves me correctly, I think it was between Garrett and Trubisky at one. Yeah. Like they were debating do we do we take Trubisky, the hometown kid, which I thought would have been a disaster had they taken him. Not because I don't think that Mitch Trubisky was a good player, but just the whole we know what it's like here in Cleveland and I, his family's here. And I, it's just it would have been bad. So um, he made the right decision. So if you're looking for credit for making the right decision, yeah. I will cede credit for him making the right decision and taking the layup of, of, of Miles Garrett. I, I, I will absolutely give you that. Um, Najoku, I think, has the potential to be a really, 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 really good player. And he's got to show it this year. He does. This is a very big year for him. Uh, Jabril Peppers, I can't answer that. And I'm not trying to cop out. I'm not. But I can't answer that because I'm still trying to figure out what the hell Greg Williams is, was doing with him. I mean, I'm just happy now I can I can watch a Browns game. I can go back and watch a Browns game in the TV copy and see all 11 freaking defenders in the picture. Like, I'm thrilled by that concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I can take attendance. but um, So I can't, I can't answer the Jabril Peppers part. Just because I don't think he was in a position to be successful here, and you know we'll we'll see what he ends up being in New York uh, with the Giants. But one home run, Miles Garrett. Miles has Hall of Fame talent. Okay, so Sashi will be able to say I drafted a Hall of Famer. Uh, Butch Davis drafted a Pro Bowler. Believe it or not. It was the freaking long snapper. <laughs> Ryan Pontbriand, that was the only pro bowler Butch Davis drafted. But um, So, yeah, I'll, I'll concede. Got the home run, Hall of Fame uh, caliber, once-in-a-generation defensive end type talent, Miles. Um, and then I think the jury's out on those two other guys because just it's unfair to make a judgment on them right now. And the one thing is, and I don't, I'm not trying to be negative. I just like to have these fights. I'm not sure for all the good John Dorsey has done, and I would never dispute. I mean, the Randall trade is great. The Beckham trade is great. To go out and get Jarvis Landry, who I think by an analytical evaluation of of what he does compared to how much he's paid, you might quibble with that. Jarvis Landry has helped make the Browns a better franchise, when, and I don't think anybody around here would argue that. When you're when you're bad, sometimes you got to overpay. So, and, and going into last year, they were bad. And they needed to get they needed to get Jarvis on board. And how do you get a guy on board with what you're doing? You pay him. And 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 I think Dorsey understands that part of that stuff. And 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 you, you heard it today. I mean, uh, you know what what did they do when they brought in the new re- receiver? They put him on the phone with Jarvis Landry. He's a big yeah. he's a big reason, Doug, for the the culture change. And credit see. And I've always said this. You know, yes, you have to have talent to win, but at some point the onus has to go on the players. They, you know, the coaches can draw up all the great schemes and, and everything, but if the players don't have the talent to compete at this level, and they also don't have it internally to compete and to be successful, you'll never be successful. You'll never you have, and they they have core pieces now that have that internal fire. Your start, your franchise quarterback, your franchise defensive end, your two franchise receivers now. Okay, Nick Chubb, your franchise. You have players now that have that within themselves to want to compete and welcome that. To welcome, yeah, I'm going to Cleveland. Uh, you know, that's what impressed me with Baker when he stood up to come. I, at the time, I was like, man, that guy's got a set of stones on him. Boy, is he real arrogant to get up on a podium and say I'm the guy that's going to turn around the Cleveland Browns. But he did. He said, hey, if there's a guy that's going to do it. It's going to be me. Ain't going to be anyone else. It's me. I'm the one that's going to go to Cleveland and turn that mess around. And so, so far, he's you know living up to that promise. But it takes a special 
type of person to be able to do that. And I think Dorsey has capitalized, as we talked about earlier, on opportunities. Jarvis Landry was an opportunity. Guy was. Got guy on a final year's contract, had a negative reputation of being a disgruntled player, always complaining. I think he got kicked out of a game because he got in a fight or something. And in that and Dorsey pounced on that. Saw that you know, saw that potential. He was a little out of place last year as being the number one. I always said he was a number two, but they're paying him a number one. Again, when you're bad, sometimes you've got to overpay. And the Browns for years had overpaid guys and they had never really kinda like you know, like Paul Kruger, good player, they overpaid him to come here. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. From the Ravens. So um, Dorsey capitalized on those opportunities. He capitalized on what Sashi Brown gave him. And again, I go back to so many times the table had been set with the burning the house down and collecting assets and whatever, and the Browns are just throwing it all away. The GMs are just wasted those assets and had no fruit to show for the losing. Whereas now, we're going to look back at 1-31, and and we're going to be able to laugh about it because you can look forward at what's here. And with this roster and what Dorsey's been able to do and what we expect him to continue to do, because you got to find play like next year, going to be some tough decisions to be right. made. Now the hard part comes. You got the players. Now you got to go out and win. And now Dorsey's got to keep it together and manage the cap. And we'll be having those, you know, type of debates. You know, we're going to be talking about which guy should we keep. I, I said, instead of which guy should we cut and get the hell out of here as fast as possible, we're going to be having conversations. Think about this, Doug. About where should they spend their money? What I, I, players should they keep? I have tried the the hashtag too many good players has been created. <laughs> like I swear I've said There's it. There's no such and, thing. And I've meant it in terms of like those decisions. Yeah. Right? That you're gonna have too many good players to pay. You're gonna have to you are the Brown Browns fans are gonna enter a world where you're gonna lose good players, not because you don't want them, but because you can't afford them and tough choices have to be made. Which again is not a world and guess that what? they have lived in. And teams do that around the league all the time. That's what winning looks like. Right. And if you're and if your GM's worth his salt, he's able to replace it's it's that cycle. Okay. I, I call it I, I call it the the wheel, the rodent wheel, <laughs> the hamster wheel. Um, that's what you're trying to create here is that hamster wheel of talent. So when you lose a good player, yeah, okay, it, it sucks. You lost a really good player. But guess what? you got someone that's going to slide in and take their place, and that wheel keeps spinning. So let me end with this, on this negative note from me. <laughs> and I want it, I am not, I am not a John Dorsey, uh, I am not negative about John Dorsey at all. I think in the end, my evaluation would be Sashi Brown and John Dorsey both did a good job. And to me, they both deserve similar credit for where they are. And I don't think Sashi would have been completely incapable of some of Dorsey's moves, like, for instance, taking Baker or taking Denzel. I don't know if he could have pulled off the Randall trade. I don't know if he could have pulled off the Beckham trade. And those are gigantic things. I don't know that anyone could have pulled off the Beckham trade other than somebody who was like longtime friends with Dave Gettleman and basically used his friendship to take advantage of his friend. And just hammered the crap out of him too. Hey, is it, you can call him like, Odell available yet? No, okay, talk to you tomorrow. And so Odell like, available yet? Talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, that's what he did. And like, I hate the old boys network in the NFL. But, that was the old boys network working for the Browns. And so like Dave Gettleman, if Sashi Brown tried to call him 20 times and do that, Dave Gettleman wouldn't pick up. He'd be like, this frickin' nerd in Cleveland keeps calling me. Because he and Dorsey are boys, then it's like, oh, John. So anyway, but that's a fact. And then that conversation finally got to, look, we gonna do this crap or what? 
we gonna make this deal or what? Like, that's what Dorsey did. And he took advantage of his friend! And Gettleman's like, yeah, let's just get this, let's just yeah. get it over with, alright? I think there might have been like an eight minute period of time when Dave Gettleman thought that was a good idea. And Dorsey made him make the trade in that eight minute period. And then I think afterward, Gettleman was like, what have I done? And it was too late and he can't say that. Yep. Here's the thing. I come, you make a great point, and it's going to be a super important point going forward. And as I like to say, I love roster building discussions, but they're great for the offseason. We have seven months of the year where they're not playing football. I don't want to be talking about salary cap ramifications all the time in the middle of the year. Mm-hmm. Enjoy these 16 games, and it's going to be more than 16 because they're at least getting to one playoff game. But in keeping the wheel going, the first time that that has been needed didn't work. The second-round pick, who's practically a first-round pick, who you put in the wheel to replace the guy that you had to trade. And it's not that I disagree with trading Zeitler. It's that the guy that you drafted with the first pick in the second round to fill that spot bombed. Okay, So, Chad Thomas, again, like Olivier Vernon's not going to be here real long. Mm -hmm. Chad Thomas, is Chad Thomas anything as a third-round pick? And by the way, that third round, other third-round pick from that year, you traded for Tyrod Taylor, which turned out you didn't really need to do. Yep. Are we sure, like, Sheldrick Redwine probably needs to be up next in the wheel to take over for Demarius Randall. I don't know. Did Sheldrick Redwine in, in preseason camp look like a guy that's like, oh, definite starter <laughs> next year? Yeah. Right? I know everyone's excited about Taki Taki and Mac Wilson, especially Mac Wilson. Yeah. Taki Taki, I think, Places seems like he's a boomer bust kind of guy. He's going to make some big plays, might make some big mistakes. Are you sure that those two guys are ready? To... That's all I'm saying is there. I think there are some assumptions being made about some of these Dorsey picks that aren't Baker, Denzel, Chubb. Yeah. That, you know, people poo-poo all you have left is Schobert and Higgins. I'll tell you what, Corey Coleman at least gave you a little bit as the number 15 pick. He had 100 yards receiving in his second game in the NFL, and then he got hurt, and then he was a knucklehead. Austin Corbett, as the number 33 pick in the draft, has legitimately given you zero. Emmanuel Ogba picked at the same yeah. spot as the first pick in the second round. At least gave you a couple years of maybe thinking he was going to turn into something, and then he turned into Eric Murray, and Eric Murray's going to help this team in some way. Ogba turned out not to be a great pick. He was a better first pick in the second round than Austin Corbett. So, like, I'm in. I think Dorsey trades have been excellent. Dorsey draft, I think his biggest hits are capitalizing on the extra assets that he's never going to have that many assets again. And then some of the other stuff I actually have some questions about and I need to see some stuff because like we all thought Jannard Avery is like going to be this great, you know, he's going to be like a situational pass rusher. And again, for the fifth round, that's great, but he's not an all pro. He's not Miles Garrett counterpart on the other side. I think we're a little out over our skis on Dorsey the drafter once we get past the obvious hits, and some of those picks are going to be end up being really important because of what you said, because they're going to have tough decisions to make, and if they don't fill in with some of their second, third, fourth, fifth-round draft picks, they're going to be in trouble down the line. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that, that they're, they have to capitalize on their opportunities to keep that keep that hamster wheel spinning. Um, the the Corbett pick, yeah, it, the reason it's so uh, magnified right now is I say that, again, he's five of six in the first two rounds. Unfortunately, the miss is a very big miss right now, okay? It doesn't matter where they put him, he's not good. In fact, I would have cut Corbett. I, 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 I've said it on my station, I've written it, would have cut Corbett because I just, he's not. I don't think he has it. I don't think he has no, it. No, he doesn't. 
Uh, no matter where they put him, it just, he doesn't have it. He's getting his butt kicked. Uh, nice kid, but it's nothing personal, but. Maybe too nice. You know, um, so yeah, I'll give you that. I, I'm curious though what your take would be if you flip the picks. If Chubb was the first pick in the second round and Corbett was the second pick, would you be, would you be any more lenient? Uh, or is it be, or is it because the 30, because it is the 33rd, which is basically a first round pick that that really makes it clear to stand uh, out? I, I mean, cause I, I give him credit. Cause he, it feels like to me at the moment is Corbett's the guy you wanted and Chubb is the bonus. Right. Well, Chubb, the, the reason he didn't, the reason he didn't pick Chubb 33 is because he knew the teams in front of, uh, that were going to be in front of that, that 34 pick weren't going to take a running back. So he could afford to go and leave Chubb on the board uh, for that extra pick because he knew. And that takes a little, you know, that, that strategic planning or whatever. But, um, you, you're a hundred percent right, Doug. They have to fill in and, and build this like the Pittsburgh Steelers have with that recycling talent, yeah. what the Green Bay pay- Packers do, the recycling talent, the Chiefs, the great, the Patriots. God, I, you have to mention the Patriots. You recycle your talent. You, uh, you know when to part ways with players. Okay. That's one of the things that Bill Belichick does so well. Like Sashi trading for Jamie Collins, uh, it looked like a great move. But that I always like. Why is Bill Belichick? Bill Belichick wouldn't give Cleveland Jimmy Garoppolo, but he'll give right. him Jamie Collins. You know what I'm saying? It goes back yeah. to the. There's a reason that guy's a good player and he's available. Deal, and you know, at the time, yeah, okay, great trade, Sashi. But <laughs> then you see all the yeah. Then you see why Bill Belichick was willing, right. you know, w- was willing to part with him. Um, no, I think that's true. That's, that's it, a good it, point. I mean, it, it, so it's it's going to be critically important for Dorsey and company going forward. That they do hit on their draft picks because, you know, hey, you're you're not you're not at the top end anymore. Just like the waiver claims now, you, you don't get first dibs. You're mid, you know, because last year you're middle of the pack, and now your draft picks are going to be the goal between 28 and 32, right? In every single round, that's the goal. That's where you want to pick every year, and you're going to be help. You're going to have to be able to find players in those picks to come in and replace some of your good players you lose. When they have the Super Bowl parade, would you invite Sashi? I would. Okay. That's all I can at least can he sit on I, a float? I I would invite Hugh Jackson. No, I no, would, no, no. Hey, hear me out. I would invite Mike no. Patton. I would invite Ray no. Farmer. No. I would invite Ernest no. Biner. I would no. invite no. I I I, I want contributors to the, the success. The statue of no. Al Lerner would be invited, and I despise that thing. I, I am rescinding the Hugh invitation. Like, that invitation <laughs> is rescinded preemptively. Aren't we allowed to have a little fun at the end of this podcast, Doug? Not if it involves inviting Hugh Jackson back to Cleveland. All right. The, Dar- guy, the, the guy with all the quarterback headstones is invited. McNeil, the, the, the oh, 0-16. Yeah, yeah. You know what? If the, the Super Bowl parade should be planned by McNeil. I'm, oh, gonna, uh, I'm in. We, we need to start that petition. Uh, but Cause I, I, I think it could happen. I think it legitimately could happen. I don't think it's going to happen this year. No, I don't think I, it is either. I think within the next three years, it's fe- depending what happens with the new CBA. Of course, it's the Browns' luck. They I know. The, the worm appeal you know, is ready to turn, and and it's kind of like the Indians in the in the '90s. You know, they were I think it was a game and a half behind the White Sox, and then baseball decided they weren't going to have baseball in August of uh, 1994, and thankfully they were to come back and and roar back in '95, and it was a great run. It, but it's so reminiscent of that, and we just we don't know what this new collective bargaining agreement's going to be you know can they still roll that unused cap space over you know what are some of the provisions with the mm-hmm. the rookie wage scale and veteran scales and 
and you know what's the structure of the season going to be because there's a lot of talk about that there's just there's so many variables in that new, new, new CBA and uh, as luck would have it the browns are like on the cusp of greatness and they're going to mess with the uh, uh the structure of how the NFL does business but I, i'm with you i 2 years ago uh it was laughable to think that the browns uh could see, be a see, super bowl contender but now and i look at what's here i'm like you know what uh, I can see it happen, and I go back to like the Cavs. It was going to take something historic to end that championship drought. It was going to take a special group of players and a, just a, a, a special set of circumstances, and it all fell into place in 2016 to make that happen. And you can at least see when I look at the, this Browns organization and some of the things that you and I have been talking about here, like I can visualize it. And yeah. I, I wrote it after the Odell trade. I mean, that was my column that I wrote right after it. You know, he he woke the sleeping giant and turned this franchise into a Super Bowl contender. Kids got to go out there and do it, no question. Players got to play, coaches got to coach. But you know, you look at this talent objectively, regardless of who's responsible for acquiring it, and you say, man, this is a really, really good football team, and it's not slapped together. This isn't a one-hit wonder. This group's going to be together for a few years. And I would, and we'll we'll end with a dispute, which is which will be good. I would say I I would not have thought when they were one in thirty one that it would be laughable to get to this point because I absolutely viewed that as the prelude to this. I I viewed one in thirty one as a necessary step in this, and the thing that I think when 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 Dorsey has used that phrase, "wake the sleeping giant," to me the giant was asleep for a long time and like nobody could wake it up. So I think the only way that you could wake it up was to put it in a coma first. <laughs> That's a good analogy. And Sashi put the Browns in a coma. And so you're not just asleep. You're like out. You have no, it's almost like ignore the one in 31. Close your eyes and you're going to wake up two years later and you're going to be like, what day is it? And you're going to be like, no, it's what year is it? Because we knocked you out for two years because it was too painful. Your body had to regenerate, and now you're back. And now you have a chance to live again. But your body, you needed that time, not just to sleep, but to be gone from this world. And so I know they tried it before and it never worked, but as you pointed out very early on in this discussion, they never tried it to the point of winning four games in three years. They never tried it to the point of 1-15 and 0-16. and 16. They always tried it to the point of 4-12 and 12 and 5-11, and 11, and they made a lot of mistakes along the way. I would argue that the 1-31 was unexpected, that that was an, un, un, an unexpected consequence. I think that upstairs, Sashi and company did not feel that the team was going to go 1-31 when they did it. I don't think they didn't. I think there's the difference to me in what in what they did is they didn't lose on purpose, but they didn't care about winning in that moment. Now, I think if you would have said honestly, truth serum, before one of those seasons, how many games do you think you'll win? They probably would have said three or four. The, uh, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you the greatest moment of Sashi Brown's tenure as the chief executive of this football team. That's pulling the plug on the fax machine with yeah. the ankle straight. <laughs> Well, that's the thing, because you can't chase that stuff. You have to be willing to accept the losses, and I don't have it right in front of me. They also didn't have to go 
Oh, and 16 and 1 and 15 to get the number one pick. They right. could have won two or three games that year. And, and they could have if they had a decent coach. And still wound up with the number one pick. And the other thing is, the thing that they were preparing themselves for, I think, is, and it's dangerous when you're trying to trade up for a quarterback, because if a team, like sometimes, like the Rams got Jared Goff and the Eagles got Carson Wentz because the teams who picked number one and two that year were willing to deal. I think some of this asset accumulation was for a plan of, okay, if we reach a point, if in the 2018 draft, we're picking third. We can we'll package our two first round. We can buy our way to. We'll the package one. three and four to move up to one. So you don't get Denzel, but you have the assets to move back. And how did you get the assets to move up by moving back? And that it's about using those assets, and that eventually, and I've said it a million times, people on this podcast have heard it. They were never going to get to the end of this rebuild and forget to get a quarterback. I think if they had gotten Carson Wentz then, Carson Wentz is now coming up on the end of his rookie deal. Instead, they build a franchise first. Now you plop in the quarterback, and you can maximize Baker Mayfield's rookie contract because you are ready to win in year two of Baker Mayfield. We are having actual Super Bowl discussions in year two of Baker Mayfield. It's year four of Carson Wentz. Mm -hmm. So if they had if they had, had a quarterback who had to lose for a couple of years, you're you're wasting his prime of his rookie deal while you're getting good. They tried to build first, then add a quarterback. I think that has to be part of the Carson Wentz discussion. Well, that's the that's the new formula in the NFL right now. Yeah, because you know who invented the formula? The frickin' Browns. And Miami's doing it right now. Well, uh, the I, I'd say that the Rams might have been a little ahead of the time with, with golf. But, and to be fair, but you'll... But no, but that's the thing. Like, you're, you're these, these franchises now, Doug, are trying to structure it to where... They, as you said, I think you explained it well, where the, the franchise is basically built and you plop the rookie quarterback in so you can pay everyone else around the rookie quarterback. He comes in, gets you over the top, gets to the Super Bowl, hopefully win the darn thing. And then when that quarterback comes up, you got to pay him to keep him. But unfortunately, yep. you have to let some of those pieces walk. And but and now on top of that, your front office has to be able to fill those pieces in with back end of every single round of draft picks. And that right now I think is the next science that the Browns have to master. But Which let's they have let, a couple years of this first. But let's yes. let's enjoy what they've done. They finally have been able to get the puzzle to come together and we can see what the picture is. Okay? And that's a winning football team. They've never been able to do that. No. This they, was the hump they had to get over. Yeah, they got oh they're over the hump. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like I feel and that's why you know, I can have fun with you talking about Sashi and that. And hey, what do you know? You can actually have a nuanced discussion. Yeah, see, you know, it's nuanced. You know, but um, you know, that's why you can you can look back on those years and say, yeah, yeah, I, I get what they were doing. Okay, fine. Like, because you're looking ahead, you're 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 looking at the potential of what's here now. And I don't think we'd be able to do that if some of the choices that Dorsey has made didn't pan out all of right. a sudden. Because guess what? Then we're still spinning the wheel in the same mud that you've been stuck in for for 20 years through this expansion era. But you have a team now. It's not slapped together. The core is going to be together for a couple of years. And that's what's exciting is, is this window of contention that has uh, opened up. And, you know, the frustration of, you know, the NFL being set up to go from worst to first and the Browns were the only team yep. incapable of doing that. Well... Uh, they're going to go for mediocre potentially to first because they took that quantum leap a year ago. They got Hugh out of the building, and all of a sudden, magically, they started winning football games. And uh, this, this, uh, you know, you throw Odell in the mix, you throw two Pro Bowl defensive linemen in the mix this year, 
it, it that's why I say you know ten wins, uh, eleven maybe, get to the playoffs. Hopefully, win a playoff game, get that experience, yep. so that next year, absolutely, you retool it, and then next year, maybe uh, in what's what, make sure my math is correct, twenty twenty one, January, February twenty twenty one, then we really plan. Then you're there, you know, for for that Super Bowl because you got to get that guy in New England. Hopefully, he retires this year and, yeah. and will you know step aside, kind of like LeBron did for the Eastern Conference. Step aside, you guys could have it. I'm going to go west and, and, and go to Hollywood. And it's going to be funny. It's probably going to be once the Patriots. If and when that ever happens, it's going to be the two quarterbacks that John Dorsey drafted you know trying a- to own the AFC with Patrick Mahomes and Baker Mayfield. Well, or how about this one? The Browns ending Bill Belichick's dynasty no, I, I mean, in January. I, I, I swear, to, I wrote, I wrote that. What a story that was! Eighteen be. months ago, I, I have, I have fantasized the whole Browns Patriots like. Playoff game. It's the changing of the guard. Brady's done. They take care of Belichick to vanquish. Oh, don't worry. That uh, that scenario is is in my head. Um, how about that? How about that? A civil, nuanced, Dorsey Sashi discussion. That I think there are things we disagree on still, but I think we're. I think I see your points, and I think you see my points, and I think the bottom line again is I, I, the Sashi stuff. I don't. It's just a weird thing. It get, it's it's a weird thing that has happened, and and that I don't quite get it. But um, some people were were so against every part of it when it happened, right. and then there as a result as a result they're sort of like incapable of acknowledging any of the good. Um, and so like I'll give you Corey Coleman, blown pick, and then if you give like well you know what yeah Denzel Ward and Nick Chubb Sashi has something to do with that, and there's an understanding here of like. You know, John Dorsey turned over a lot of the roster. Also, I'm thinking about like half the starters now are guys that were here before and half are Dorsey guys. But I was a little offended. We have to stop at some point. But like the whole like there's no football players here. Everybody turns over the bottom of the roster. And actually, he's turned over some dudes that he didn't need to turn over. Like Carl Nassib could, could help this team more than Chad Thomas could. He dumped the Sashi third-round pick and kept his own third-round pick. I think right now, who's a better football player, Carl Nassib or Chad Thomas? I'd take Carl Nassib. Yeah. Now, that doesn't matter because you have Miles Garrett, Olivia Vernon, Larry Ogunjobi, all this stuff. But sometimes, like, to give a lot of credit for the bottom of the roster churn, John Dorsey brought in 36 guys. It's like, well, yeah, but 25 of them never play. And so, yeah, I'm going to give him Damaris Randall, give him Jarvis Landry, give him Odell Beckham, but also give Sashi Brown, J.C. Treader, and Miles Garrett, and Larry Ogunjobi, and Rashard Higgins. And, and like, it all matters. And it all matters and the bottom line is that the Browns are in a place, and we'll end it with here, Daryl, that, again, you you are a veteran here. You haven't felt like this about the Browns since Bernie stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. Um, I'll just say my parting shot on the whole Sasha Wars is going to be, <laughs> you're, I agree with everything you said. I understand what you just said, but it's the John Dorsey guys that are going to win that Super Bowl. Odell Beckham Jr., Baker Mayfield, Denzel Ward, Greedy Williams, Nick Chubb. It's going to be the Dorsey guys that are going to be on that first parade float. And I would say Odell Beckham acquired with Sashi Brown cap space and a Sashi Brown pick. Baker Mayfield acquired by losing under Sashi Brown. Nick Chubb acquired (laughs) with the Brock Osweiler pick. Denzel Ward acquired with the pick they traded down twice to get. And so I agree. 
Sashi deserves an invite to the parade, and Sashi deserves a bouquet of flowers and a big thank you card if the Browns win a Listen, Super Bowl. If you have a setter in volleyball... Thanks for taking all the crap from fans they, and media for two years and blowing up the team and 1-31 in 31 jokes and everything else. Thank you very much because without you, John Dorsey could not have built the team that is here. A volleyball team's need, team needs someone to set the ball and someone to Absolutely. spike the ball. Absolutely. And if you go up to spike the ball and the set is behind your head, you can't spike it. But if you do a perfect set and the person spikes it in the net, you don't win it either. All I want out of any of this is acknowledge. And Brown's Asashi's. GMs have been spiking it in the net for 20 years. John Dorsey's the first one to get it over the net. And, and like a thousand percent correct. And often, usually, right, the, the spiker, you know, the spiker, that does that spiking person, he's spiky. He gets a lot of attention. The poor little setter down with, like, on his knees, like, diving to get the, they don't get as much attention. But you do need the set. And I don't know that they've had, I don't think they ever had a setter quite like Sashi as much as they did try to tear it down before. And I don't think they've ever had a spiker like John Dorsey. So I think maybe we can end on that the idea of the Browns are here um, because they finally got it right in more ways than one. And yes, it's Baker. Yes, it's Miles. But it's a lot of other really good stuff along the way. And that you've got to have a couple big moves, Odell, Miles, Baker, to get you over the top. But if you don't have Jarvis and Demarius Randall and Joel Batonio, Ray Farmer, and a couple other ones along the way too, Joe Schobert, if you don't hit on some of those other ones, Baker and Odell and, and Miles still aren't going to be enough. And the, the remarkable thing that just everyone... They've done a lot right. It's not snap your fingers overnight. They've done, and nobody's perfect. And yes, I've harped on Arshon Corbett. John Dorsey hasn't made like three good moves. He's made like 17 good moves. Yep. And so it is, it is, as much as I thought I saw it coming, it is also, on the other hand, remarkable the work they've put in to put them in this position with week one coming against the Tennessee Titans. He's Daryl Ryder. What's your Twitter account? Right or wrong fan, and uh, that's R-U-I-T-E-R, wrong fan. He's on 92.3. He's been covering the Browns forever, and he's about to cover a team that's going to the playoffs. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. We'll be back on Takes by the Lake. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Make sure you are following me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. Read me at cleveland.com. Uh, again, you can get my text messages about Ohio State. Sign up at projecttext.com slash Buckeye Talk. That's $3.99 a month. Or you can get our Browns text from Mary Kay Cabot. Uh, and with that, you don't just get the text. You get an insider newsletter that comes out every day in the morning that has a little three or 400-word thing, a video. Sometimes Mary Kay answers questions. Dan Lobby, Scott Patsko, Mary Kay, and I rotate doing that. So like I have a thing up Tuesday morning that's sort of an analysis of how many people from this 53-man roster uh, were also on last year's 53-man roster to start the season and were on the 53-man roster the season before that. So sort of how this team was built, what starters were here then, what starters are here now. We try to give a little different analysis in there, stuff you're not getting at cleveland.com. It's bonus. You're getting a lot of great stuff at cleveland.com, but if you pay $3.99 a month for texts from Mary Kay, every day then you get this bonus insider with even more analysis about the team you love so try that at projecttext.com slash clee football that's slash c-l-e football so keep listening to takes by the lake keep listening to buckeye talk keep reading cleveland.com thank you guys so much it's going to be a super fun year 
and you have earned it. Enjoy. We'll be with you on the entire ride, and that ride is going to take us into January. I'm Doug Maurice. That's Takes by the Lake, and we'll talk to you next time.